Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by Game Time. Hey, buying tickets to your favorite events shouldn't be stressful. With killer deals on last-minute tickets and their best price guarantee, you can snag the tickets without the stress with Game Time. Download the Game Time app now, create an account, and use code GOODSEATS for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account, redeem the code GOODSEATS for $20 off. Last-minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. Download Game Time today. And now, here's our show. The white flag is out. One lap to go. This is it. Last lap. Stand by for a Two of the greatest fiddling here, fidgeting with first place. Passing some of the strikers in the last lap. Trying to take it home. It's all come down to this. Out of turn two, Donnie Allison in first. Where will Kale make his move? He comes to the inside. Donnie Allison throws the block. Kale hits him. He slides. are out in the backstretch are the leaders watching for the leaders to they're still up in turns three and four the leaders are up in turns three and four coming down richard petty is now pulling out in front darrow waltrip is in second aj boyd is in third here they come waltrip trying to slingshot petty is out in front at the line waltrip petty wins it let's look again at that crash here it is, they're in the end of the turn already, spinning, sliding. The hopes for Donnie Allison vanish. Cale Yarbrough trying to win his third, he's out of it. A sad moment for these people, but for Richard Petty, hurt all of last year, driving most of the year with a broken and battered body, he comes home a winner today after 45 straight losses. And here comes a $60,000 car becoming a 22-passenger school bus to bring his crew to Victory Lane. And, and there's a fight between Cale Yarborough and Donnie Allison. The tempers overflowing. They're angry. They know they have lost. And what a bitter defeat. A couple of very hard men, very hardly upset. And Bobby Allison has stopped by his brother to help. Richard Petty in car number 43 battling Darrell Waltrip. Here they come to the line. The photo finish camera was on the checkered flag and for a Waltrip going right down on the apron as he grappled with Richard Petty for first place. But there was no stopping Petty for his sixth win. A man who has lost 40% of his stomach in the past two or three months, who drove hurt all last year, who hasn't had a win in a long time, comes home the winner of the 21st annual Daytona 500. Coming up next on CBS Today, the NBA. For David Hobbs, Brock Yates, Ned Jarrett, Marianne Bunch, I'm Ken Squire. We've been delighted to bring you flag-to-flag -flag coverage of perhaps the most amazing, astonishing Daytona 500 in history. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Oh my goodness. How are you, everybody? It's your pal, Tim Hanlon, and it's good seats still available. Welcome, welcome, and welcome. Welcome back to the proceedings. We uh, are ecstatic to have finally made it to episode number 300, and we're going to kind of dub this one the Good Seats 300, shall we? 
Why not? Because it's NASCAR time. We're going to be dialing it up and uh, talking about the 75th anniversary of NASCAR, which is this season, if you've been paying attention. Uh, some interesting racing going on. And this is a circuit that um, is just chock full of amazing stories and tremendous history, ups and downs and all arounds. And uh, we are delighted to have a nice little roundtable this week uh, with our guests from the uh, the book. The uh, uh, It's now out. Just came out last week. It is called NASCAR 75 Years. Uh, and it is uh, the uh, it's a gorgeous coffee table book, chock full of uh, amazing photography and great uh, decade by decade uh, stories and, and reminiscences and highlights. Uh, and the four authors of this tremendous book are here with us this week to roundtable it up, shall we say, uh, as we kind of reminisce about some of the best, most memorable moments of NASCAR's 75 years to date. And of course, we'll get into the current state and perhaps a little bit of future prognostication as well. Al Pierce, uh, Mike Hembry, Kelly Crandall, and Jimmy Creed, all of them uh, extremely knowledgeable about the sport, uh, well-decorated in their coverage over the years uh, of this sport, and all of them uh, to a person uh, with uh, their own particular uh, style and take on how to cover the sport, how they have done it, and their own uh, specific points of view on where this, don't call it a league, I guess, call it a circuit, is is headed in the future. And it's exciting for yours truly because uh, uh, this summer in Chicago in July, somewhat controversially still in, in the city in terms of uh, how they're going to handle all the traffic and uh, clo- closure of roads and and all that kind of stuff for the uh, for the big road race here in Chicago. I think it's going to be pretty darn exciting. Uh, and uh, it's certainly a, a, a breakthrough uh, in how NASCAR presents itself, uh, embedding itself in the middle of a city, uh, taking over literally and figuratively the city for uh, an entire weekend and frankly, actually a whole month uh, as it gets going. But uh, we're excited to see that here. And it's, I think, emblematic of, of where NASCAR is headed. It is, uh, I would argue, the last uh, 10, 15 years, it's been kind of uh, wobbly in terms of its uh, fan support. Uh, it was just going off our breakneck level of excitement in the uh, in the early aughts and certainly in the 1990s. Uh, but as you heard in that clip, uh, perhaps one of the most breakthrough and maybe even most memorable moments uh, was in February of 1979. Where were you uh, during the uh, the middle of February for the Daytona 500 in 1979? Uh, in many respects, one of the most exciting, if not the most exciting finishes uh, in the sports uh, 75-year history. That's Ken Squire and uh, David Hobbs calling the action. In 1979, uh, that was the first time that uh, television actually broadcast the race live and flag to flag. It was on CBS and uh, was bolstered in terms of its viewership uh, by uh, the fact that much of the East Coast and the Midwestern part of the United States were uh, suffering uh, uh, through a blizzard. And uh, that weekend, it was challenging for people to get around. And it uh, was a, a, a no surprise that a lot of people, just curiosity and and uh, and the like, were home. And they tuned into what was a much more limited buffet uh, of television viewing at that time. 
and the Daytona 500 more than filled the bill. And it was the buzz. I mean, we're talking about, I think there were a lot of conversions to, to stock car racing at that time. Uh, I think it would be fair to say that even during the 1970s, uh, a regional sport is really what NASCAR was. And that region, of course, was largely the Deep South. Uh, clearly, the roots of that sport uh, emanate from there and still very much so. But I think 1979 was a seminal moment that uh, introduced to a lot of people who never really gave stock car racing much of a look that this thing was uh, exciting, built for television in many respects. And um, yeah, not only in terms of, of racing, but even some fisticuffs and and heated uh, arguments, if you will, for uh, these uh, racers who uh, donned their helmets and uh, not quite as safe as today, for sure, automobiles to do battle around the, around these uh, these racetracks at ridiculously high speeds. We'll get into a whole bunch of other memories, but that's one we certainly remember and uh, arguably will set the table for our conversation, our, our little roundtable uh, with the four authors of NASCAR 75 years, uh, our new pals, uh, Jimmy Creed, Kelly Crandall, Mike Hembry, and Al Pierce, all joining us now uh, in just a few moments' time for our conversation. The good seats, 300, if you will, coming right up. Uh, let us uh, point you to uh, that book. Again, it's called NASCAR 75 Years. Uh, it literally just came out, and it's got nothing but five-star reviews uh, and if you are a huge fan of NASCAR racing, if you are generally interested in racing overall, not just the NASCAR stock car uh, variety, but racing generally, or just a sports fan and could use or benefit from a beautifully photographed and well-written, I guess, introduction to what the first 75 years of this sport has been, run, don't walk to get this uh, anniversary copy of the book. It is available wherever fine books are found. It is published uh, by uh, Motor Books, uh, an imprint of uh, Quarto. Uh, but uh, of course, you can find it conveniently on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 300. My goodness, ring the bell for that. And uh, by buying through that link conveniently there, uh, you will be whisked away to Amazon and uh, you will give us a few uh, bucks, not bucks, frankly, pennies and nickels, a couple of dimes, maybe, let's be really honest, of referral love when you uh, purchase that book and all the other great stuff from all of our other great artists. Artists? Interviewees? Yeah, whatever. They're all artists in their own way. Uh, interviewees uh, from uh, this show. And we appreciate you uh, buying that way. For sure, it helps keeps our light, keeps, helps keep, there we go. It helps keep our lights on uh, more than you know. We appreciate it very much. All right. So enough shilling. And boogity, 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 let's go racing, boys and girls. Here's our conversation we had just last week. Please, as always, enjoy. I consider myself, I grew up in the, the Northeast. Uh, I live now in the in the Midwest. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, probably uh, the least uh, confused with a NASCAR fan, but uh, I surprise and shock and occasionally delight a lot of people when I tell them that uh, I follow it every week. I even I even follow what trying to do what, what Haley Deegan's doing in the in the in the truck series. Um, and I'm you know, it's 75 years this year. It's a um, it's a tall task. Uh, and I guess I'd love to maybe just hear from all four of you, um, you know, where uh, your interest in the NASCAR story comes from, both professionally and personally. Um, and uh, what what 
how did this book project uh, come together in the first place? Don't be shy. <laughs> I was going to say, who do you want to start with? <laughs> Go ahead, Kelly, please. Oh, geez. And, then, and let's want to actually, why don't we identify yourselves too? I think it'll be helpful to the audience. Uh, Kelly, since you were first to chime in, uh, why don't you describe uh, yourself, what you, what you do and, um, uh, and, and you're part of it. And then we'll do it with the other, with the other three. Sure. So uh, Kelly Crandall, I am the uh, lead and only NASCAR writer for racer.com. And I also have a podcast myself, the racing writers podcast, my uh, origin story, I guess, if you want to say, with NASCAR goes back to, well, an event that, that many people remember is uh, the passing, the death of Dale Earnhardt Sr., the last lap of the 2001 Daytona 500. I was not watching that race, but my father was. My dad at that point was a casual NASCAR fan, but kind of like casual football fans, always tunes in for the big race. And he was watching and for six months after that all I heard was about that race and Dale Earnhardt's death and how he needed to watch the summer race when they when the series went back to Daytona it was going to be special and he even talked about getting tickets and going to the race with a friend um, so anyway long story short I, that's all I heard about and I sat down and I watched the 2001 Pepsi 400 at Daytona that Dale Earnhardt Jr. won and that's what hooked me. It was the stories. It was the personalities. It was the the speed, the sound, um, everything that went into that race. That's what hooked me. And uh, by the time I was in high school, I believe it was English classes, writing were, was always my favorite and realized I could combine the two things that I liked, which is racing and writing. And and here we are. Um, as far as how the book project came together, you got you got to ask Mike Hembry about that. That was his bright idea to bring me on board for this. So uh, I, I appreciate it. He was the one that roped me in, and, and I was happy to do it. All right, Mike Tag, you're it. Hi, I'm Mike Hembry. I work for NBCSports.com uh, covering NASCAR, uh, one of a string of auto racing-related jobs I've had over the years. I grew up in nascar country in spartanburg south carolina um but really wasn't a fan growing up i would read about it occasionally and and watch it a little on watch a little on tv here and there but not really a fan started to work in journalism um got a job in the sports department and uh the gentleman who was covering nascar for us uh, left the paper and i was called in the next day by the boss and told that i was now an auto racing writer and had never had never even been to a race so i had a lot of catching up to do quickly didn't i wasn't really that impressed with the job uh, when i was told that i had it but i caught on pretty quick i guess and discovered that there were a lot of a lot of people to write about a lot of different personalities uh, everywhere you go on the circuit is different as far as the people you meet and the people you interact with so, um, and, and obviously a lot of characters in the sport, uh, particularly uh, in, in the 70s when I started. Uh, if you couldn't find a story to write about in, in the garage at any particular race, you just weren't trying hard enough. The uh, The book itself, um, it was uh, almost an easy decision by some publisher to do a 75th anniversary book about NASCAR. Um, and I had... I had done a, a coffee pay, coffee table NASCAR book uh, some years back. Uh, so the publisher got in touch with me and asked me about doing uh, two or three chapters in the book. And I readily agreed. And, um, and of course, Jimmy and Al signed on and, 
the publisher was looking for somebody to do the the more modern chapters. And I thought about Kelly. She's been around a few years now and um, obviously very smart and, and knowledgeable about what, what's going on and what has gone on and uh, talked with her about getting involved and, and she was ready to do that. So here we are. Al, Jimmy, does that uh, mesh up with your recollections of how this came together? Um, I lied like a bandit to get my first newspaper job. Uh, and, and the source of the lie was, we need somebody to cover NASCAR. Uh, this was in 1969. I had just gotten back from Vietnam as an Army officer. I didn't have a job, didn't have any prospects. There was no market for Vietnam captains, so I decided I'd become a civilian. But the local paper here in Newport News needed a NASCAR guy. And I knew that because when I did my interview for the job, uh, the sports editor said, well, can you cover football? Of course I can. What about basketball? Oh, yeah, baseball, sure. Tennis, golf, yeah, I know all that stuff. <laughs> what about sidecar racing? I knew absolutely nothing. I knew less than nothing, but I knew where that I knew that if he was going to ask me a question that specific, I better have the right answer. I said, "Oh man, yeah, of course." I said, "I'm I'm from North Carolina." I said, "Richard Petty's from there." I mean, uh, I've been to Daytona for the 500, which I had been as a fan years earlier. I said, I know all that stuff. And he said, when can you start work? And I said, well, <laughs> like right now? And he said, yeah. And that was 55 years ago. Um, the first race I covered was Dover in July of 69. And this most recent Daytona 500 was my 54th in a row. Um, so I kind of, like I say, if I had not, told the sports editor that I thought I could do NASCAR or stock or racing in general because there was a local track I had to work with. Uh, I don't know what I would have done. I just, I know I needed a job and can you cover stock car racing seemed to be the magic question. And I had the right answer and I've been at it like, like Mike and Jimmy and, and Kelly, I've been at it pretty much on a daily basis now forever. And, um, <laughs> Don't really see an end, but obviously it'll happen sooner or later. Well, Al, that's the that's the uh, the quintessential one door closes, one door opens, and uh, and and you know you want to make sure that you you step through that door properly, and it seems like you have, and uh, and that door is uh, firmly uh, firmly closed in in your benefit, which I think is great. Um, and, and Jimmy, you get the final word on on the origin story of you and this. Well, I guess uh, I come by my NASCAR. A love of NASCAR naturally, uh, born and raised in Talladega, Alabama, uh, about 10 miles from the track uh, in the house that I still currently live in. Uh, in fact, if you, um, as a kid, it was um, always cool on Sundays. If you, if you didn't go to the race, you could sit on my front porch and when they had, when they first started the race and they had all the cars cranked up, you could actually hear the cars uh, running at the track uh, from sitting on my front porch. And um, 
can't tell you for sure which which was the first race I went to at Talladega, but I can tell you the first uh, vivid memory that's burned into my memory banks from that track was um, uh, when I was when I was in high school here. It always seemed to work out where the uh, spring break fell during race week, and so that was fortunate for me. I was able to. Um, usually able to find someone to take me out to the track. And that was way back when they did qualifying on Thursdays and way back before um, the in advent of the restrictor plate. And so there was always a chance now, uh, qualifying was a big deal at those times. And Al and Mike can both tell you because there was always a chance that there was going to be a new speed record. And so my first vivid memory of, of Talladega is, uh, being there on the Thursday that Bill Elliott uh, set a record that'll never be broken now uh, when he won the pole at 212.809 miles per hour, I think. And so that's without, that's without restrictor, right? That was without restrictor plate. Yeah, I believe that was, um, I don't have it right in front of me. I think that was the 85 uh, spring race in Talliga. And, and at that time, they ran the other race in July, if you can believe it. In, uh, but um, that was my first vivid memory of that. Uh, and then the the book itself, I owe, I owe a big thank you uh, to another longtime NASCAR beat writer named Larry Woody. Uh, I think Larry was pro was approached first about um, uh, doing this uh, chapter. And Larry was a longtime uh, writer for the uh, Tennessean in Nashville and a great guy, one of the funniest human beings I know. And uh, he he didn't um, he he wanted to pass on it, but he he rec gave me a recommendation, and and so I I was very happy to get on board on a project like this. All right. Well, so let me uh, sort of ask. I guess uh, uh, the first question I kind of want to get to is sort of process, and then we can get maybe to some of the nuggets of history that uh, you use to shape and 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 go deep in both from a personal perspective as well as historical perspective but let, let's let's focus first on on process because you know this is a um this is probably one of the if not the most unique sports histories you're going to find in a, in American sports right um it, it's it's a family owned single entity uh uh literally created uh from scratch quote unquote sport uh, that you know is not uh, it's it's part of a bigger uh, a sporting realm. This thing called auto racing, but but it's its own unique and specific thing that's just grown into something that's just so uh, that, that it is is uh, available and and permutated on so many different levels. How how do you structure this seventy five years? Like how do you even create a skeleton? I guess maybe Mike, this is for you, but how do you kind of where do you begin to kind of just put the guardrails on what you're going to do to kind of just guide this story before you, you all four of you start to, you know, dig in and, and actually do the story? Well, the, the, the publisher sort of uh, helped us out there by saying, okay, you do the sixties, you do the seventies, you do the nineties. Uh, so we were able to sort of bracket the history within those 10 year periods which made it more manageable. And we had, uh, you know, had, had different people doing uh, each section or, or, or sections. And that was really the only way to handle it. It's such a, it's such a long 
period of years and so many things happened, so much changed, um, not only across all those years, but even from one year to the next, so much can change in NASCAR that you can hardly keep up with it. So you had to have some kind of, um, I guess, uh, parentheses around a particular section or, or time so that you could deal with it. And it, it was kind of convenient in that those decades sort of uh, arranged themselves as far as the way things changed. The 50s were all about, uh, or almost all about racing on dirt, short tracks. Then the 60s came along and that was the, the super speedway era when people started building big tracks everywhere and the sport sort of got its feet. And then the 70s, Winston came along with the big sponsorship and, and took things to a, a whole new level. So there were there were instances that sort of labeled each decade. And that was uh, at least the way I approached my part of the book was trying to to do a theme sort of for each decade. And that that seemed to work out the best. They asked me which decade I wanted. And I said, well, I'm actually I'm actually older than NASCAR itself. I was born a long time before NASCAR was. So I said, listen, I started in 69 when Talladega was first created. Uh, let me have the entire decade of the 70s, because that's when I was in my first 10 years of my 54-year reign. So let me have the 70s, which included R.J. Reynolds, like Mike said. It included um, the appearance of, of television, the, the famous 79 Daytona 500 um, in which Earnhardt, I'm, I'm sorry, which uh, Kel Yarbrough and Donnie Allison wrecked and, and there were some other races in the 70s that became legendary. Uh, so it was natural for me to spend my time of the decade of the 70s since I had, that was the first decade of the sport that I had been through uh, in total. So um, they asked what I wanted and I said, I'll take the 70s. Because I lived it. So I don't know how Jimmy and, and Kelly got their decades, but uh, I got mine because that was when I was first showed up. Well, that, and that was pretty much the same for me. I They um, they, they asked me which one that I, I would like, and I, I said I would like the 80s because pretty much the same reason as Al there. That was when I first really got into it. And um and you know a lot of the er, my earliest re recollections and and I, I I don't know about the process for for uh, everyone else but I literally just sat down and started out and made a list of bullet points that I of everything that I could think of pretty much right off the top of my head that I felt like absolutely positively had to be in the in my chapter. Uh, and then I had the task of, of whittling it down to something that was realistic. Um, and, uh, it, and it, it was, um, it was a tough task to, uh, from the standpoint of, you know, what do you, what major event or major happening or milestone do you, do you take out? But, um, when, when I was finished with the chapter, I, I felt like I had done a, 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 a pretty good job of, of hitting on all the, the major high points for my decade. Yeah, it sounds like Jimmy and I kind of had the same approach. I did the same thing. I, I came on probably the last one to come on board. So the 
2000s to present, as Mike said, were really kind of in my wheelhouse. That was what I'm most familiar with and comfortable with. So I was lucky in that regard. And I, they asked me if I wanted to take, you know, just 10 years or, or a couple years. And I said, I'll take all of it. So I, I was excited and, and eager to do it. But as I said, Jimmy and I, we had the same process. I took a legal pad and I started off by just jotting down bullet points or ideas or events or drivers, rule changes, whatever it may be that I thought I would want to include in the chapter or that should be included in the chapter. And then it would go back and refresh my memory, pull up, you know, different web pages, pull up, go. I went through other NASCAR books. I went through the history of NASCAR books. So just refreshing my memory on things and just kept adding to the pages on the legal pad of things that should be included. Should this be included? And just like Jimmy, by the time you, I sat down to write, it was okay. What can be included? How important is this to include? And really the way I approach my chapter might be a little bit different from what I've seen from from Mike and Jimmy and Al, what I've read so far from theirs is I, I wanted to focus more and be a little more broad because I felt like the 2000s to the 2010s to the 2020s, there's so much change in the sport, whether it was from Bill French Jr. to Brian France to TV packages, the schedule, the playoff format coming into play the technology, whether it was the car of tomorrow or, or other technological advances. So I took a more broad approach in trying to highlight as much as possible from those decades instead of being, as I would say, maybe a little fancier on focusing on, on driver battles or uh, stories in that regard. I just I took a, an approach of there was so much that happened through all those decades that I wanted to highlight again, how much the sport had changed throughout that time. So that was, um, again, it was what I was comfortable with, thankfully, because I was familiar with it. And then I was just reminding myself of other things. And, and, and as Jimmy said, just trying to whittle it down and figure out what makes sense to include and, and what's going to get left on the, on the legal pad. You know, it's interesting because um, it is. Uh, it seems like it's an impossible task, especially given that the fact that this book is it's a, it's a coffee table type book, right? So much more heavy on the uh, uh, photographic imagery, and obviously the words uh, that accompany that, the stories and stuff have to be. How can I best put it? Um, pretty uh, succinct, right? Which is even a harder challenge than writing maybe a hundred pages of stuff, right? Where you have plenty of time to let the story, you know, breathe and get the quotes and all the sort of nuances and stuff, right? So you, the economy of words in a format like this is probably even a bigger challenge for a writer given uh, given those constraints. And I, I, I wonder, um, I, the question in there is, number one, um, is there uh, a a bigger opportunity to do narratives by these decades beyond just this book. This, it feels to me like this is almost the the tip of the iceberg. And then number two, well, let me ask you that question. Uh, do you think there's more narrative expansion, shall we say, that could be brought to this story someday, perhaps as a series, maybe as a, you know, a, a book, a decade, that kind of thing. Has there been any discussion about that? Not that this isn't a good format, but to me, this is almost like the sampler platter, if you will. I can speak to that. I, um, the, the short answer to that is yes. There's a, there are many narrative branches you could, you could jump on from, from this tree trunk, I guess. And um, some of us have done that in some other books. We've, 
Uh, I've written several about NASCAR, including a, a, an overall history some years ago from, from start to finish. And I think what you have to do is uh, look at the characters. Uh, Richard Petty, the most famous of all, uh, you know, several books have been written just about him. Uh, same with Dale Earnhardt, Carol Yarborough, at least a couple about him. Um, so the the challenge of this particular book was taking the, I guess, the best stories of those people and kind of meshing them together with the history of NASCAR overall and seeing how it kind of came out when you put it all together. And uh, those those particular names, Petty, David Pearson, Bobby Allison, Dale Earnhardt, Dale Jr., Jimmy Johnson, Jeff Gordon, they keep popping up as this long historical tale is told. But you're right, there any number of these characters in this book could be a book of their own, and so, and indeed, some have been. Um, but there's, <laughs> there's a lot more stories to tell for sure. Yeah, and let me uh, also then throw that second question there, because one of the names that you didn't mention, and I think for uh, this becomes sort of the interesting sort of side question, uh, is the France family, right? Um, uniquely entwined and a, a part of the story, of course, for for obvious and maybe even not so obvious reasons. Um, but I guess the challenge of doing this as an officially licensed NASCAR book, right, um, it's probably pretty straightforward, but clearly there are, are there are plenty of twists and turns in the story over the years that, um, how could I say, journalistically could be more questioned or nuanced or maybe even more uh, differently approached. Um, so I got to think that there's some some level of of constraint in the, in in your ability to tell the narrative. I guess up to a point, right? Because there are obviously things that I'm sure NASCAR's not excited about, maybe remembering or uh, bringing to the fore or whatever. Well, oddly enough, um, I didn't see any real uh, fences put up in, in what I was asked to write about, which I I did find a little bit surprising, uh, frankly. Um, you know, you're talking about auto racing. You're talking about the possibility of somebody dying every week. And a lot of people died over these 75 years, particularly before a lot of the safety advances went, in, went into effect. But um, there's a lot of that in this book, you know, and uh, as far as I can tell, none of it was really whitewashed uh, much, if, if, if at all. And I've had experiences in other situations where some things were kind of danced over. But I think this book is is pretty open in in the situations that we had to deal with about death, about controversies that came up, um, about problems along the way and things that didn't go the way they should have, uh, et cetera. I, I understand what you're saying um, and, and the and the, the France family, particularly uh, Big Bill France, the, the founder, uh, really good grip on things over the years. Um, a, uh, a benevolent dictatorship, as it was known for some time. <laughs> sure. But, um, yeah, I, I think 
I think what's in this book is is pretty open. Uh, I'm not sure what what the others' experiences were in that in that realm, but I, I really didn't didn't meet any run into any fences. Well, I can I can tell you that I I had one of those type situations in my chapter for the 1980s that I had to uh, address. We we had to address it up front, and that was. Um, the the life and the career of uh, and the the death of Tim Richmond uh, in the 1980s and um, we were um, we had a discussion the publisher and I had a discussion about how do we handle that because it was it was such a big story at the time that it it needed to be included but what we decided was was that that was um, to just handle it pretty much like any of the other information uh, that we that I was going to put in the chapter. And so um, I didn't there was a whole lot of things in my chapter that I could have expounded on or expanded on at great length. And so um, I just made mention that of you know, the situation with Tim Richmond uh, mentioned that uh, that he um, uh, was uh, later uh, announced that he had had died of AIDS, and then and then I just moved on. And uh, that, as far as I know, that um, those the wording, the exact wording that I used there, uh, manuscript that I that I turned in in my first draft was the exact wording that that's in the book that's published now. So I, I agree with Mike. I, I don't feel like that there was, there was anything that had been or was whitewashed here, but there were, we didn't have to kind of make some conscious decisions about, about hand, how you handle things and, and what kind of, what kind of play you gave it. Yeah. And that's heartening because, you know, I, I especially too, for, for fans who are, uh, aware of NASCAR or casual fans or or come in and out of it, say during Daytona or you know some of the the the, the marquee races and and don't follow it sort of week to week and stuff. I mean, it, it's it's unavoidable, right? I mean, it, and it's not necessarily nefarious or or uh, uh, overshadowed per se, but you know, this is like I said before, this is a perhaps one of the most unique sto stories in all of American sports in that this is not only single entity, which is now becoming sort of all the rage, I guess. I mean, Major League Soccer and all any new sport, it seems, has, you know, single control and the franchises are not franchises. They're actually parts of a bigger whole. But it's also a family run thing still to this day or heavily, heavily uh, overseen by. Right. Not no influences from outside investors and that kind of stuff. And and it, it, to me, you know, you look at it from a purely journalistic slash cynical perspective, you worry about sort of that maybe potentially compromising the story. Now, look, we're talking about history here, right? This is not, you know, this is not sort of an investigatory kind of thing. But I think to casual fans who know that, and even maybe the, the diehard fans, right? They recognize that it's, it's you know, it, you said benevolent dictatorship, but those are, it's a probably apt description. Uh, I think there's obviously uh, I'm sure there will be some people who will look at this book, want to see as much of the history as they can and would not be surprised if there was something that was sort of over uh, maybe sort of uh, skated around or whatever. But it doesn't sound like that's the case. And I think that's heartening uh, because, you know, in many respects, I mean, you even mentioned the Tim Richmond thing. 
Um, you know that 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 he's emblematic of of uh, 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 what was going on in society around that time, and NASCAR and all of its you know wisdom is was not immune to it. And he was a uh, he was a flashy he was a flashy personality, uh, unavoidable. He was he was uh, he was quite the fan sensation. It would be very hard to deny that part of the uh, that story during that decade, right? Right. It would it would have been impossible. Uh, it would have been a huge omission. If we had left out um, uh, Tim Richmond in in any form in that chapter, either chronicling his um, you know his career and his exploits on the track, or um, the you know how how his life ended. Well, let let's not kid each other. NASCAR only lets us know what they want us to know. There were there were certainly moments in the Tim Richmond saga that that we don't know about. There were certainly moments that uh, Bill France Sr. and Jimmy Hoffa and some of those people that we really don't know about. We we know that there was an attempt to unionize the drivers. We know where France stood. We knew where Jimmy Hoffa stood. But th- th- there's probably a book worth of stuff that we don't know and we will probably <laughs> never know we may never know the true story of of what brian france was doing the day he got caught in new york drunk driving uh we may never know all the details you know they tell us all about what dale earnhardt died of and they parade doctors out and they parade out autopsy reports how does anybody know that what, what we were told that night was really what what it was. Um, yeah, I'm not, I, I'm, I, yeah. I'm not just just a second. I, I'm not saying it was a massive cover up in in any area, but there were things that we probably would like to have known that they just they, they don't want you to know that the the night the night that uh, Lee Petty and Johnny Bochamp. And Joe Weatherly took the checkered flag in the first Daytona 500, three wide. Within an hour or two, Bill France knew who the race winner was. Had no question about it. He waited until Wednesday to make the announcement. He wanted to milk that as long as he could, which is part of his genius. (laughs) But we don't know what all exactly went on when T. Taylor Warren went to him and said, Mr. France, here's clear-cut evidence that Lee Petty won. And France told him basically, shut up, I'll tell you when we'll announce it. So, yeah, Mike, you're right. There are things that, that, that the book publisher never called us on because maybe we did not know more about what we were writing about than they wanted us to. Kelly? Well, it's interesting that Al mentioned Brian France and and his arrest in 2018, because that was, of course, in, in my chapters, in my decades that I had to cover. And I remember I initially wrote that uh, the same way that I had covered it at the time and giving the detail that we had and, and explaining what had happened and going into how that eventually led to Jim France becoming the interim president and CEO to just uh, or excuse me not president chairman and ceo to just quietly uh 
becoming taking over that role as Brian uh, left the family business. And the publishers were very upfront when they sent back their edits and they sent back some com- conversation and communication that, you know, that that was something that we weren't erasing, but we were just going to tighten it up. We were going to, we were just going to, we're not going to gloss over it, but it had to be highlighted that he had left and that Jim France was now the man in charge. But I guess the best way as Jimmy and everybody else have explained is you just, you just tighten it up. You don't gloss over it, but maybe you don't um, go into thousands and thousands of words on it. Um, That could be something, as you said earlier, Tim, that, that could be a whole nother narrative, a whole nother story, a whole nother book on Brian France's time in NASCAR. So uh, again, I wrote it as honest as I could write it, and I understood why the editors and, and the publishers were doing what they had to do, um, but I was just glad that in the end, as I said, it wasn't completely taken out, and or at least as far as I know from what I remember when I got the book, I, it was in there, so that that was the best that I that I could hope for, and I understood why they were doing it. Yeah, and I'm not trying to stir up anything. Don't get me wrong, but I, but I, it's I, I'm glad you're all sort of responding sort of in an honest way because I mean. I, Regardless, I mean, I first of all, I think the fans understand the deal, right? I mean, they know this is that they've they've grown up with the culture. They understand, and and it and it, it to any outsider, it, it's not surprising because it, it's a closely held private entity that's family owned and controlled and has been since essentially day one or day minus one. So it, it I think everybody kind of just generally understands that this is just part of what's. Of what's what, and um, I just it. I've seen this in other scenarios, and other uh, not only in other sports, but just in in other uh, histories, right? It, and stuff. It, it's um, the temptation is there to, um, in some cases, sanitize. I'm not saying that's the case here, but to to keep things on the relative straight and narrow. And the fact that you you are all sort of uh, 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 successful in throwing out the the parts of it uh, the, the good the bad and the ugly maybe it's a little less ugly than maybe nascar wants it but that's you know that that's what makes the history history right is is to 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 own it right and if it was wrong at the time or something untoward happened or whatever um that's kind of how we all sort of apparently learn and grow and and don't make same mistakes uh, twice and that kind of stuff and i got to think that's harder in a very closed society if you will then, you know, if you were kind of tackling the history of the NBA or some other league that's sort of been around with a little bit more, uh, shall we say, air running through the vents, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, t- Tim, I think it's it's good to point out here that the, the four of us are are and have been daily journalists um, doing what's been called, I guess, the first draft of history <laughs> every day. Um, so when when we look at big controversial topics like Richmond's death and uh, any number of things that have come up over the years, which made big headlines, uh, we typically have written about those in the moment, you know, with as much information as we could gather about those things. And then a few days later, we move on to something else. There's something else to cover, something else to write about. And then when you look at a book like this, where you're having to get so many happenings, so many races, so much stuff into a relatively compact chapter about a decade, there's just really not space to get 
deep into these individual things. And, and that's part of the, the handicap, I think, with a, with a book like this. You, you're trying to do so much that you just can't get expansive looks at everything in. No, I get that. Um, and, you know, with our remaining time, I, I think I want to throw it to uh, the four of you to kind of maybe put you on the spot a little bit uh, to maybe kind of surface perhaps a, 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 a particular point in NASCAR's history that you were either part of or that you did it and researched and stuff to kind of uh, put sort of uh, these uh, things sort of in perspective. And it's it's an impossible task to pick just four. Um, but I, you know, I'll, I'll throw one out just to kind of begin and I don't want to steal anybody's thunder or if I am, then you can sort of follow on. But I think for a certain generation of fan, um, that's, I, I don't know, I don't know if it's a pivot or it's a, it's a, uh, uh, an apex or if it's a, a, a bright, hot, you know, comet in, in the history. But I, I think there are a lot of people, especially those in the, shall we say classic, uh, you know, ball and bat sport types, uh, that would probably say, and that where the casual NASCAR fan would probably say 1979's Daytona 500, simply because of the uh, literally and figuratively perfect storm that sort of occurred between weather, um, television, uh, the race and the dramatics of it, um, that uh, I I don't know if it put it on the map on a on a national level per se, but it certainly feels to me. And again, I'm not as schooled as you are in in, in all the history as as you all are, but it feels to me like that was like such that feels like a massive change of the of the of the chessboard uh, when when you look back on on the the arc of this sports history. Would you agree? Disagree? Yeah, the fact the fact that it was on live national television is what made it what it was. If that had happened um, three years earlier when there had not been live TV, you know, two guys wreck on the last lap of a big event, it had happened before and there was not television live at all of those. Um, in my mind, that the, the 79 Daytona 500 and the inaugural Brickyard 400 are the two on-track events that I think carried the sport forward more than anything. The other thing being off-track, R.J. Reynolds and its money, it really saved it. It it put it 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 gave NASCAR a second, third, and fourth breath at a time when it was struggling a little bit. So those three were all part of well, not that not Indy, but. Daytona and RJR are part of my decade or part of my uh, chapter. And, and yeah, I think those two are big, big deals. And I think the Brickyard was a huge deal. Well, Tim, I can speak to this from a fairly unique perspective because I uh, wrote a book with Donnie Allison uh, called As I Recall. And uh, he, in fact, the, the book itself uh, starts out the with Donnie the night before the uh, 79 Daytona 500 and and uh, he he talks about how he got up and and is looking out the window and, and it was that was such an as you said an incredible um, a perfect storm if you want to call it because he's looking out the window at a huge rainstorm uh, there was really a lot of doubt that that race would be would even be run uh, and he went on he always says that um, 
that Big Bill France had a unique uh, relationship with the man upstairs because um, the whole entire eastern seaboard is snowed in with a, a you know, a once in a, what I guess they call it a hundred year storm. It's raining in Daytona right up almost until the time for the green flag. And then they get the racing in and they get that incredible finish. But I can tell you that um, those of us that are close to Donnie um, and, and a lot of race fans feel like that that is um, the race that put NASCAR on the map. And, and I can tell you that, Donnie says that you know, he wishes that he had a dollar for every time that that NASCAR has used some of that footage uh, in their marketing and promotional campaigns, and he, he'd be a, a very rich man. Well, look, I the only reason I bring that one up is is because and I think this is I, I, I think it's emblematic of a certain form of sports fan, right? Northeast, Midwest, uh, the uh, the arrogance and the history of the tr- quote unquote traditional sports and stuff. And that was like the first time it really kind of, it was unavoidable and man, it was something that, that was so new to people in sort of those state and, and uh, you know, traditional kinds of mindsets that um, it really opened up a lot of people's eyes to uh, th- that this, this thing was a sport. I mean, you know, the, the tape delay on ABC, I mean, certainly that was there for years prior to that. Right. But uh you know, the in-car thing, I mean, it was just, it was, it was a whole, it truly was just a, a confluence that I think really kind of just spun things out to a, a whole new orbit. And NASCAR just had to be giddy coming into the 80s. Tim, there's no question in my mind that uh, the 79-500 is the event of the 75 years. There are other, so many other big races, though, that 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 have come along, Um in my mind, three years before that, the 76 500 had what I still think is the greatest finish of any NASCAR race when David Pearson and Richard Petty crashed coming out of the fourth turn racing for the win. Uh, that was on live TV, too. When, um, the last part of the race was picked up live. Uh, you know, different circumstances. There wasn't a fight. Uh, there was no people weren't snowed in across the Northeast or, or whatever. Um, but it was a tremendous finish between the two guys who were the, who were the Titans of the sport during that period. Um, also you got to look back at the first Southern 500 in, in 1950, when 75 cars started a race on a, a little track, a little over a mile long the race took like six hours to finish, but they did finish it. Somebody won it. Um, and, and as Al said, that the first race at Indy was, was a really big deal because of the, uh, the barriers that, that were crossed after, uh, after Indy and NASCAR had been, uh, had been so far apart for so many years. To see that happen was certainly big. All right, what's this? Game time? Fantastic. Hey, buying tickets to your favorite events shouldn't be stressful. With killer deals on last-minute tickets and their best price guarantee, you can snag the tickets without the stress with the Game Time app. And I will tell you, the Game Time app has gotten me out of a couple of jams on more than a few occasions. I'll tell you, a couple of weeks back, I travel fairly often for work. I was 
stuck in New York. I had uh, dinner plans fall through uh, during a business trip. I was leaving the next morning, uh, but had some time on my hands. And what's a sports guy like me to do? Well, scouring around to see if there are any events going on. And sure enough, the Knicks were playing the Nets at home at the world's most famous arena. So about an hour before the game, I fired up the game time app and uh, found a decently priced ticket. I won't tell you what <laughs> the people around me paid for their ticket, but it was, certainly wasn't nearly as expensive as theirs. And I got to watch the Knicks uh, uh, in a rare uh, moment of uh, uh, amazingness, uh, kick the snot out of the nets. Uh, but that's uh, game time is uh, the place uh, to get your last minute tickets. Uh, they've got a tremendous set of deals, flash deals, they call them, uh, and last minute tickets. Uh, they're easy to find and buy uh, for just about every kind of event you want, sports and entertainment, music, that kind of stuff. The images, the seat views are just perfect. They're great. That's that's always like the, the big uh, conundrum when you're looking at a, uh, a seating chart. You have no idea where you're going to be, uh, what your view is going to be like. And Game Time's got uh, probably the best imagery that I've seen of any of the uh, ticket sites out there. And, of course, they've got a lowest price guarantee, including... Event cancellation protection, so you know you're going to be covered in case. As a matter of fact, that the game time guarantee means that you'll always get the best price. And if you find tickets in the same section uh, and row for less, game time will credit you 110% of the difference. Uh, don't believe me? Try it for yourself. Download the game time app now, create an account, and then on us, use the code GOODSEATS for $20 off of your first purchase. Again, that's the GameTime app, and uh, it's also, uh, you can check them also out at GameTime.co. Uh, but get the app, download the app now, create an account, and use the code GOODSEATS for 20 bucks off your first purchase. Terms apply for sure. Last-minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed, it's GameTime. Thank you, GameTime, for your sponsorship of this week's episode. And now, back to our conversation. You guys also spent a, bu a bunch of time on the super speedways, uh, that sort of uh, 1960s sort of era. I mean, at Talladega, we sort of hinted at it before. Um, and uh, just the the sheer monstrosity and uh, of that and, and the speeds that were achieved, taking the racing to a whole nother level. But also at the same time, and, and this obviously sort of appeals to to our audience in particular, right, is, is uh, the beginning, and I think we saw it certainly more in the, in the 2000s and, and and still even ongoing now, I'm sure Kelly can speak to this, is the, I don't know, the right word is abandonment of uh, of some of the tracks that got NASCAR to where it is, but certainly a, a moving on, shall we say, perhaps from some of its roots. Interestingly, this year, right, a, a throwback, at least for one race at the All-Star break in, in North Wilkesboro, um, sort of at least as a, as a, a tip of the of the cap to that, right? But um, I, I think it's undeniable, and it's certainly thematic in, in what I've read thus far in this book, that it's kind of, it is a bit sort of a double-edged sword-id uh, and uh, wistful, right? In that you've got some great tracks that are part of this sport's history and this, this, this entity's history, uh, yet it's also sort of fighting with itself to sort of evolve, right? And go to the newer, and to the faster, and to the the street races in Chicago this summer, which I'm looking forward to. 
Um, what are your thoughts generally about that, or maybe even some specifics about, say, tracks and races that you know have come and gone, uh, and that sort of fitful relationship with the sport itself as it continues to grow and modernize? Well, I think you hit it right on the head, which is it's there's the battle of its roots and the sport evolved. You look at the 2000s and even the late 90s of how the sport just boomed in popularity. It got so big. You look at the racetracks and how many grandstands were being built and you look at the racetracks that NASCAR was going to, but then realizing that they wanted to expand and be a national, they they, they became a national sport. So they wanted to go to different markets and listen, Jimmy, Mike, and Al can talk more about that than I can of, you know, the, the races that lost dates on the schedule because NASCAR wanted to to take it elsewhere and go to other racetracks. But Tim, you made a good point. It's interesting now to look at the sport and look at the people in charge and look at how the fans are being heard. And even the drivers of all of these racetracks or, or, or you mentioned North Wilkesboro, they don't want them um, to completely go away. We're bringing some of them back. You know, Wilkesboro coming back is absolutely amazing. I think that's going to be an absolutely unbelievable weekend. I think the atmosphere is going to be incredible. The drivers are really looking forward to being at that racetrack. The fans that I see, whether it's on social media or, or that talk to me at the racetracks, cannot wait to watch it or attend. Um, but then, yeah, you also mentioned Chicago, right? There's still also this constant need to try new things and go to new markets and try to bring racing right to the heart of these cities and where the race fans are. So it is, it's a very interesting balance of the folks who want NASCAR to go back and not forget its roots, but the sport also trying to use the word evolve. That's exactly what it is and, and continue to take it to new places. So uh, as I said, I mean, the other three can certainly speak more to, to those races that, that fell off the schedule, but it, it, it is, it's so interesting to see how, the circuit, how the schedule has changed so much throughout the years and the different areas that the sport was going and why they thought that was a good idea. Well, I think it's very interesting that um, you, you do see NASCAR looking at it and, and kind of going back to the root, so to speak. Um, if you had told me five years ago that there would ever be another event at North Wilkesboro, uh, I would have, probably said um, no way there's no way that's ever going to happen that track is just is just going to fade into oblivion uh, so and I think it's good that NASCAR is uh, paying attention to the the things that a lot of the fans want and that and because I think that in a lot of respects and just speaking my own personal opinion here but uh, the NASCAR grew too fast uh, the early part of this decade, I think NASCAR grew way too fast. They they tried to expand into a lot of different markets. Uh, I know they were looking at New York at one time, at Seattle. Uh, they went to Chicago. They went to Los Angeles. And and, and I think that was, um, in some ways, that might have, um, you know, that might have been a speed bump for the sport. But I think now uh, that uh, that they're they're looking at it, uh, and going back a little bit, I think I I I, I think the North Wilkesboro race is a great idea, and I'm 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 glad to see NASCAR trying things and looking you know looking for things that that will work. 
it's it's ironic in my mind that fans are so excited about Wilkesboro and fans generally don't give a hoot about the Coliseum, uh, Bush, whatever it's called now, the the Bush Clash of the whatever the Clash of the, the Coliseum racing. Uh, fans generally pan that uh, because they don't like the idea of going into a football stadium. They they they'd much rather have that preseason race at say Rockingham yeah. than out in the West Coast. California has closed down Ontario, closed down Riverside, closed down Auto Club Speedway. So I don't know that Southern California is the end-all, be-all that NASCAR would like it to be, but they still go out there every year and run on the football track, whereas they could do the same thing at Bowman Gray. So, you know, (laughs) they've closed a lot more. They've closed a lot of tracks and taken down a lot of seats, but they didn't become billionaires by making bad decisions. Yeah, I mean, look that—that's all. That's see, that's that's very uh, interesting, and and it's it, it's true. It it is it. Um, like I I remember, I think I came uh, into real consciousness of the sport in the '90s. I was actually, <laughs> I'm dating myself now, but uh, I worked at uh, this little credit card company called MBNA America, and you may remember this, some of you. They were the official credit card issuer of NASCAR, and yeah. uh, part of the ever all the employees at MBNA had to do various things. We had to do customer service to you know get in touch with the consumer, and we'd, they'd send us out on these events uh, to market the credit cards and stuff. And yours truly, his first event was to go to a NASCAR race in, in, in uh, Concord, uh, North Carolina, for uh, uh, I think it was the fall race at that time in Charlotte. Yeah, Bill, and, Bill Bill Davis and uh, Ward Burton. There you go. That's right. And and um, but that the time of the 90s, I mean, it it was an explosion. Right. And um, it's kind of hard not to if you look back and I'm sure you you all sort of see this in in your historical lookbacks. Right. Uh, It's hard not to be excited at just the 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 sheer um, uh, explosion of of growth and interest at that time and not think that, hey, the next boundaries that we need to break through are you know, more of a national footprint, right? Television, media, cable, all that kind of stuff, right? I mean, that's the lifeblood of sports, especially now or streaming or whatever, right? That national footprint matters to quote unquote national advertisers and sponsors. And yet it seems like NASCAR is now having to kind of rebuild sort of that sort of national footprint approach. And maybe even to your point, uh, Al, rethink it a bit. Uh, And maybe some of the markets don't make a lot of sense, or maybe they're more uh, once in a while versus twice a year, like Atlanta. Uh, I, I don't, you know, it's it never seems like NASCAR is satisfied with the right balance, and maybe that's a good thing because at least it shows there's a uh, uh, uh there's, there's there's listening and an evolution sort of still afoot, and you know, that plenty of leagues have um uh, uh, uh spent a lot of time fighting off some of those things. It seems like NASCAR's at least need to, needs to be credited for at least trying things. Well, Tim, part of what's happening too is um, attendance has gotten quite a bit better since the the pandemic and the, and the ramping back up from that. But in in some of the previous years, the crowds at some tracks were considerably down. So I, I give NASCAR credit for for looking at situations like that and saying, well, 
you know, why do we keep going back to these places when the crowds aren't good? Let's try something else. You know, it may not work great, but let's try it. I give them credit for that. Um, the the LA Coliseum race had a pretty good crowd year one, uh, down somewhat this year, still decent, I guess. Uh, got a lot of publicity. Uh, doesn't mean you have to do it every year. You know, they're going to try the Chicago street race this year. That may or may not work. Um, but just the fact they're willing to try that has already gotten the attention of some other larger cities who've indicated, hey, this might be something we want to take a look at and at least talk about. So I think you, uh, for for decades, NASCAR was stuck in sort of a rut where they they didn't change anything as far as the tracks go. Kept going back everywhere twice a year, and it worked for a long time. But it reached a point where I think in a lot of cases there was oversaturation, and then the product went downhill. <clears throat> went downhill to a degree. So now they're they're in a situation where they really need to try different things. Let Let me draft off of that. No pun. Uh, maybe pun. Uh, uh, for all of you to kind of sort of weigh in on, uh, I guess, sort of the last sort of cul-de-sac of question here, which is, uh, where do you think NASCAR stands right now and, and, in the sports landscape and, and what do you think of its, uh, immediate future? I mean, there's a lot of question marks sort of, uh, surrounding, uh, all of it, right? So clearly management, well, maybe not management. It clearly seems that the France family is still very much in control, but, um, you know, the television rights are going to be up relatively soon. Streaming is now the way that most people consume stuff versus linear television. Uh, you know, Formula One in the United States has come out of literally nowhere versus being a niche prior. Uh, and largely because Netflix has a documentary style narrative that humanized the drivers and maybe sort of brought, is that part of NASCAR's future? Um, where do you think the sport kind of stands, um, given what you all have sort of looked back into and now sort of as you cover your stuff on a day to day and ongoing basis, what do you what do you think NASCAR is headed both good or bad um, in your minds and one at a time, please? <laughs> well, I'll I'll go ahead and jump in and say that um, I think that uh, NASCAR it has. Um, has really improved its on track product uh, in, in particular in the last couple of years. Um, I know if you're a member of any of the, there's tons and tons of groups out there on, on Facebook uh, and social media that long for the good old days of NASCAR. Uh, but I think that the, the racing has really been good the last couple of years. And I, I think that um, I hope that only continues. And I, and I think that's going to um, if you if you give it a chance, if you're not some of these people that are that are so stuck in the past um, and, and won't realize that everything has to evolve. Um, I, I think that's that's good for the sport. And um, and I, I hope that that uh, that it will it will continue that trend. Yeah, Tim, I, I think things are are uh, on the way up, particularly versus maybe between five and 10 years ago when when the, the product on track was in many cases not that attractive. The, the, particularly the competition at the front 
was was just not there. The cars were were designed such that you that, that passing was very difficult at, at many tracks, particularly the uh, one and a half mile tracks, and there's so many of those. Things are better now. They're not. They're not perfect. There's not going to be a great race every week, just like uh, there's not a great baseball game every night. You know, um, but NASCAR has realized that they they had work to do, and they put a lot of smart people into that work. And uh, I think the new car is is significantly better. The racing generally is better. It's not great everywhere. You know, it's it's never going to be great every, every weekend at every track. It's just, it's just the way it is. You're you're you you have so many teams who are working in in the same direction toward the same goal, and a lot of times they're going to land on the same idea, and the the cars are going to be uh, very close in speed. So you may not have a lot of passing at every track. It's just it's it's the way the sport works. But uh, generally speaking, I think they're on an upswing. Um, there's there's generally more interest. There are new people coming into the sport, new teams. Uh, you look at what Trackhouse Racing has done. Uh, having been on the ground not that long at all, they've created all kinds of interest with the way they're approaching the sport. So I, I think there's an upswing. Uh, still a ways to go to make it what it should be, but uh, definitely improving, I think. I think I think Kyle Busch is the only driver out there right now who absolutely polarizes half the grandstand. Half the crowd loves him, half the crowd hates him. NASCAR needs more people for fans to either adore or hate. Um, th th there aren't any great rivalries anymore. There don't seem to be. No more Petty Pearson, no more Earnhardt Gordon. Uh, they need more Tony Stewart kind of people. Ross Chastain is the closest thing they're going to get for a while. Um, Ty Gibbs and, and um, Noah Gregson came up together from Xfinity. They don't like each other. That over time, that might become something that fans will take to. But right now, if I'm wrong, you other three people tell me, I don't see that many characters out there that are moving people's emotions. Um, you know, uh, what what Chastain did last year at Martinsville is one of the greatest things I've ever seen in my 54 years of being out here. I totally agree. I totally agree. I just, you know, and to, to ban it, I think it's just, uh, it's, it's, you know. Yeah, and, and they've taken to him. But there are very few people, there are very few drivers out there anymore who create that that emotion. So I don't know. Kelly, what do you think? You've been watching them? <laughs> I think you have a point, Al. Uh, there are personalities in this sport, but it's just so rare that anybody's getting to see them, right? Because you have these drivers who are coming up younger and younger, and it's beaten into them from the beginning of how careful they have to be, and they go through media training. But yeah, Kyle Busch is is one of the last ones. A Kevin Harvick of yeah, what you Harvick, see is yeah. what you get. Yeah, and and they're not afraid to say what they mean, um, and and say what they believe. So I think you have a point on that with the personalities. In the grand scheme of things, Tim, going back to your question of where NASCAR is, I think when you look at the sport on a on any given weekend, you look at the numbers. 
the NFL, as everybody knows, is always going to be the benchmark. I think right now for what NASCAR has going on to consistently be pulling in 2 million, 3 million viewers is, is nothing to sneeze at. And when you look at the weekend, they're consistently uh, either first or second up there of the most watched sporting events. Obviously, you always want more. I think attendance in, you know, in-person attendance could be a little bit better. Um, I do think it's unrealistic. Everybody's saying, you know, oh, it's not sold out. It's not as it was in the 2000s. I think people need to reevaluate what's realistic in today's world of, of ratings and attendance. But I think NASCAR has to be as happy as they can be. Um, Steve Phelps will constantly say that this is one of the most stable sports over the last five years or so. So I know they're they're constantly tuning that horn. Uh, you look at the car, and I think, I think those numbers will only get better if the if the product gets better. I th I think what you see on the racetrack is going to translate to whether or not people are going to watch. I think this car has done a lot of really good things, particularly on the mile and a half. So I, I I think it's a it's absolutely amazing that the sport has gone from the mile and a half being the races that uh, bored people. To now they're some of the best racing out there, but you know now we have to fix short tracks and road courses. So I think if the product continues to get better, then I I think the I think ratings and well, attendance will get better. Um, as Mike said, it's 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 certainly starting to come back up on an upward swing since the pandemic. So overall, I think this is for 75 years to to tie it in as as they celebrate this milestone. I, I think the sport has to be pretty happy with where it's at right now. Yeah, I, 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 all of those. I take those all to heart. I think, I think all those are, 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 are fair and, and uh, insightful. I, I, you know, I, um, I personally, I think you bring back some fins for some races. You know, uh, that might uh, make for <laughs> a throwback race. Um, but no, I also, I also, and again, I'm not sort of as, as a, a long uh, uh, dyed in the wool fan. But I, the one thing I, uh, there are two things. One, I worry about certain tracks, uh, maybe going away, um, or. You know, I, the Fontana situation, right, seems like, I mean, just the most of that broadcast just seemed like it was, you know, uh, looking back on the former Fontana track, right? It, I mean, it's not dead yet, but I mean, they're going to bring it back in a different form and that kind of stuff. But it, it almost felt like it was an obituary uh, in many respects. And, and you know, I for every one of those, right, you, you, you can possibly lose a connection um, to the past. And I also wonder, too. Uh, if there's any mechanism, and I'm sure the economics don't sort of support it these days, especially with the sponsors not being sort of the gigantic national brands of of the 90s and, and early 2000s, uh, although it, it can come back, I'm sure, uh, is is more, uh, let's call them independent teams like the Wood Brothers and the, you know, the the, the, the one offs and, and, you know, actually having a competitive you know qualification. Right. I mean, it, there's, there's really no drama, if any anymore right because there's always there's, there's 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 never very few people get bumped anymore because there's not a lot of you know uh challengers so, so to speak so i i don't know it feels to me like that's one way you could generate some real i don't call it tension but real um drama i guess and in, in you know in the excitement of trying to qualify hey remember the 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 uh, Indianapolis 500. I mean, half of the excitement of 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 I know that's indie racing, but half of the excitement of that race every year was, you know, is Janet Guthrie going to get in this year, right? Or or you know, is AJ going to make it on his last run because he failed on his first three? You know, the, you know, the, there's some drama to that sort of independent, if you will, or that challenge of actually making the race. But that's just you know the old guy yelling at the clouds here. But uh, you know, m maybe you disagree, but uh, those are my thoughts for what they're worth. Well, Tim, you mentioned uh, tracks going away. Uh, 
prime example of that is Chicagoland Speedway, which is sitting out there in the in the far, far suburbs of Chicago, uh, basically fading away, you know, and now we're racing in downtown Chicago. Um, it, it was said not that many years ago that a speedway that hosted NASCAR races uh, and, and almost all of them had two races a year. It was said that, that that track could not survive if if one of those races was taken away. Now we've seen that happen, and and most of those tracks <laughs> have survived. Um, so it's a it's a mixed bag of of uh, expectations and and putting together numbers that people smarter than me deal with every day. Um, it's my understanding that the deal that NASCAR put together with Chicago um, leans really heavily in favor of NASCAR as far as the money that's being put out. Um, I I think they've gotten in in a situation where they're going to get a ton of publicity and some of it may be bad, (laughs) but a ton of publicity out of this, regardless of the quality of the race, that the quality of the competition in the Chicago street race is, is almost beside the point because it's going to be such an event either, you know, good, medium, or, or, or bad, it's going to get a lot of coverage, uh, a ton more than, than racing at Chicagoland Speedway um, would in the same situation. So, there are, there, you know, there are a lot of things to think about with, with tracks and, and sponsors. Um, the big, big, big sponsor, Winston, went away years ago, and, and those times are never returning. Um, they lifted the sport to an entirely new level with great professionalism, smarts, and not to mention millions of dollars and a lot of red and white paint, which made big differences. But we're not going to see that again. Uh, it's, it's a whole new era. And I think the fact that, that people are looking in different directions to make things fit is a proper approach. Well, Kentucky Speedway shut down. They've taken down a ton of seats at Richmond. Uh, they've taken down seats at New Hampshire. Uh, they've taken down seats at Charlotte, Daytona. Uh, at, at some point in time, somebody in Daytona Beach ran the numbers and said, you know, we don't need these seats. We're not filling them. Let's sell the seats to some short track somewhere, which they've done. But I, I think, Mike, I think you're right. They've got people smart enough to recognize whatever problems they've got, and they're going to address them immediately. They're not going to dilly-dally and try to run two or three years in Kentucky more than they did the last couple of years, and they didn't draw any crowd. So um, I think there's hope ahead because they've got good people in charge now. Uh, Jim France, Elton Sawyer, Steve Phelps, people like that. I think I think they're going to be okay. They may not be as good as they were in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, and the early twos, but they'll they'll be all right. All right. And last question: What about television? Any predictions about where those rights are going to go? Uh, Fox, NBC. Um, it's a different. I mean, the media realm right now is um, they're in cost cutting modes right now. So it's um, it's. But I, you know, I think the coverage has been excellent, especially technically over the last number of years. I just wonder 
where you think uh, that coverage might go going forward? And and will we see maybe streaming, do you think, more like MLS is doing with uh, Apple TV Plus and that kind of stuff? I don't know where it's going, but I will say my prediction is that NASCAR is going to get a lot of money. <laughs> I think they're going to get a lot of money, and I think they're going to continue to look at, yeah, what, what that streaming piece is going to be. So there's a lot of names out there of who could be in play. I I Again, I, I don't know one way or another of, of who's it, it's going to be, but I think it's going to be for a lot of money. And I think at some point, yes, NASCAR has to seriously look at what the streaming component is going to be, because that is the that is not just the future that that's right now. And I think sooner rather than later, they have to get on board with that. Yes, since I work for NBC, I'll sort of stay out of this discussion, but um <laughs> I think Kelly, Kelly's right. The future in in that part of the media um, may look very different than it than it has for the last quarter century. And uh, I think she's also right in. There's going to be a, a some stacks of money change hands uh, uh, over the next year or so. My goodness, that was fun. I uh, appreciated uh, that conversation. And uh, as you could probably tell, I'm more than a closet NASCAR fan. Very excited uh, for the Chicago race coming up later this year in July. Hopefully we'll get to meet uh, in person our guests this week, Jimmy Creed, Kelly Crandall, Mike Hembry, and Al Pierce. They, the authors of the book that you must run and not walk to get. It's called NASCAR 75 years it is published by motorbooks and it is a tremendous accomplishment of photography and words and uh if you're a uh, a longtime fan of nascar or a novice or just even curious about it for the first time this book is uh, something to behold and will school you in all of the great stuff that's uh, occurred over 75 years of NASCAR's history. Of course, the most convenient way to purchase is to go early and often to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 300. Woohoo. And uh, you'll find a convenient link to this book as well as as we do for all of our episodes. If there's ever a book or a movie or some other kind of uh, thing to purchase or or benefit from, uh, the convenient links will always be there. And on occasion, we'll get a couple of shekels of referral love when you do so. We greatly appreciate that. Helps keep our lights on uh, more than you will know. And um, uh, while you're there, you'll see all the other 299 episodes. We post them all there. There's a nice little search box there. You can kind of search by team or league or name or whatever. Uh, And they're all there for you. Of course, the best way to ingest all of the goodness we push your way each week in audio form is to subscribe or follow us wherever you get podcasts. There is no excuse for you not to find us because we're available just about wherever you can get them. So do it. Do it now. And uh, maybe give it a, give us a rating or review, too, if there's a possibility there. We certainly love those five stars for sure. Uh, and what else? How about uh, sending us some email? You can do that, too, especially if you like the stuff you hear or you've got some ideas or suggestions. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Social media. Follow us on Twitter at goodseatsstill. On Instagram, Good Seats Still Available is our handle there. And on Facebook, you will also find us at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, Our thanks, as always, for every stinking 300 uh, episodes and hopefully for the uh, the near and maybe long-term future. Our pal, Jerry Payne, Jerry Payne 
audio excellence through thick and thin. He has uh, been by our side and we couldn't appreciate it more. And thank you, great listeners. Thanks for helping us get this far. So much more in the in the hopper uh, and uh, on the horizon. And uh, we hope you've enjoyed what uh, what we put together for you and stumbled and rumbled and fumbled our way through uh, for these first 300 episodes, almost seven years now, and uh, lots more to come, God willing. So thank you so much for your support, your listenership. And until next week, let's uh, keep it safe, everybody, and we'll, uh, we'll see you. We love you tremendously, and thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.